37, or am more restricted on account of the elevation, and passes rapidly into the mere haymaking of a pastoral community, between Leek and Sierra, not only the mountain sides, but also the steep gravel hills constituting the old terminal moraine deposited by the receding Rhone glacier across the valley floor, are terraced to their very tops. Terrace cultivation prevails in the mountains of Italy, it is utilized not only for the vine, but for olives, maize, oats, hemp, rye and flax. On the gentler declivities of the Apennines, the terraced walls are wider apart and lower than on the steep slopes of the Ligurian Apennines and along the Riviera of the Maritime Alps, where the mountains rise abruptly from the margin of the sea. Careful and laborious terrace cultivation has produced in Italy a class of superior gardeners. The Genoese are famous for their skill in this sort of culture. The men from the Apennine Plateau of the Abruzzi readily find positions in the lowlands as expert gardeners. The Saracens of Spain in the 10th century converted every mountain slope into a succession of green terraces. They built walls of heavy masonry, and brought water, loam, and fertilizing materials from great distances. The slopes of Granada back of Malaga and Almeria were covered with vineyards. Every foot of land susceptible of cultivation was turned to account. Every drop of water from the ill-timed winter rains was conserved for the growing season. The application of intelligence and labor to tillage enabled the Hispano-Arab provinces to support a dense population. These Saracen cultivators had come from the severest training school in all Eurasia, where the arid tableland of Arabia is buttressed on the southwestern front by high coast ranges 6,000 to 10.500 feet or 2,000 to 3,200 meters is Yemen, rich in its soil of disintegrated trap rock. Adequately watered by the dash of the southwest monsoons against its towering ridges, but practically the whole country is a tilt. Consequently the mountains have been terraced from the base often up to 6,000 feet. The country presents the aspect of vast agricultural amphitheaters, in which the narrow paths of ancient paving zigzag up and up through successive zones of production. Here is a wide range of fruits oranges, lemons, figures dates, bananas and coffee, then apricots, apples, plums grapes, quinces, peaches, together with grains of various zonal distribution, such as millet, maize, wheat and barley. The terrace walls are from 5 to 8 feet high, but toward the top of the mountains they often increase to 15 feet. Though laid without mortar, they are kept in perfect repair. Reservoirs filled with water from the terrainy seasons, supply the irrigation channels. In the narrow valleys of the Nejd Plateau in Central Arabia and on the mountain slopes of Oman are found the same irrigated gardens and terraced plantations. This laborious tillage underlay the prosperity of the ancient Saudian monarchy of Yemen, as it explains the population of 35.000 souls who occupy the modern capital of Sana'a, located at an altitude of 7600 feet 2317 meters, turning eastward. We find terrace agriculture widely distributed in Himalayan lands. The steep mountain sides of the Vale of Kashmir are cultivated thus to a considerable height. The terraces are irrigated by contour channels constructed along the hillsides, which bring the water for miles from distant snow-fed streams. Their shelf-like fields are green with fruit orchards and almond groves, with vineyards and grain fields. The terraced slopes about the Himalayan hill station of similar elevation 7100 to 8000 feet feed the summer population of English, who there take refuge from the deadly heat of the plains. The mountain sections of the native states of Nepal and Bhutan present the view of slopes cut into gigantic stairs, each step a field of waving rice kept saturated by irrigating streams from abundant mountain springs. Farther north, where Himalayas and Hindu Kush meet, 
terrace agriculture is combined with irrigation in the high Gilgit valleys, and farther still along that near Gesh running down from the Pamir Dome, called the Hunza Valley. Here live the once lawless robber tribes of the Hunzas and Negaris, whose conquest cost the British a dangerous and expensive campaign in 1892 but whose extensive terraces of irrigated fields and evidences of skillful tillage gave the whole country an appearance of civilization strangely at variance with the barbarous character of its inhabitants. North of the outer Himalayan range, near the sources of the Indus and Sutlej rivers in Ladakh or western Tibet, the same form of cultivation has been resorted to by the retarded and isolated Mongolian inhabitants. Here at an altitude of 11.000 feet or more 3354 meters, Along mountain ranges of primitive rock yielding only a scant and sterile soil, terraces are laboriously constructed, their surfaces are manured with burnt remains of animal excrements, which must first serve as fuel in this timberless land before they are applied to the ground. In the stronghold of Buddhism almost every lamasery has its terraced fields yielding good crops of grain and fruit. In the densely populated Sichuan province of western China, Cultivation has climbed from the fertile basins of the Minimum and Upper Yangtze rivers far up the surrounding mountains, where it is carried on terraces to the foot of vertical cliffs. Farther north where the mountain province of Shenzi occupies the rise of land from the Chinese lowlands to the central highlands of Asia, terraces planted with wheat or other grains cover the mountain slopes. Terrace tillage is rare in new countries of extensive plains, like the United States and Canada where the level lands still suffice for the agricultural needs of the people, but in the confined mountain basins and valleys which made up the Incas territory in ancient Peru, every available natural field was utilized for cultivation, and terraces brought the obstinate mountain sides under the dominion of the Andean peasant. They were constructed, a hundred or more in number, rising 1,000 or 1,500 feet above the floor of the highland valley, contracting in width as they rose till the uppermost one was a narrow shelf only two feet broad. These were extended by communal labor year after year, with increase of population, just as today in Java and the neighboring islands, and became the property of the Inca. Streams from the higher slopes were conducted in canals and distributed from terrace to terrace, to irrigate and fertilize. These terraces therefore yielded the best crops of potatoes, maize and pulse. The cultivable area was further extended by floating gardens consisting of rafts covered with earth, which floated on the surface of lakes. They existed in ancient Mexico also, and are used today in the lakes and streams of Tibet and Kashmir and the rivers of overcrowded China. Mountainous islands, born of volcanic forces or the partial submergence of coastal ranges, have steep surfaces and scant lowlands. Their inhabitants command limited area at best, driven to agriculture by their isolation, drawn to it by the favorable oceanic climate. Such islands developed aristillage in its most pronounced form. On the precipitous pitch of Tenerife, every particle of alluvial soil is collected to make gardens. Long lines of camels, laden with boxes of earth, may be seen coming almost daily into the town of Santa Cruz, bringing soil for the terraces. This is desperate agriculture. Irrigated terraces scar the steep slopes of many Polynesian islands. They are highly developed among the Malaybatics of Sumatra, especially for rice culture. In Java, Bali and Lombok they reach a perfection hardly equaled elsewhere in the world. In Java they begin at an altitude of 1,000 feet, cutting main and branch valleys into amphitheaters, and covering hundreds of square miles. On the volcanic slopes of Lombok the terrace plots vary from many acres to a few square yards, according to the grade, while a complete system of irrigation uses every brook to water the terraces. 
Here is in Java the work began at a very early period, when it was probably introduced among the native Malays by Brahmins from India, Japan, two-thirds of whose area is mountainous, has terraced its steep valley walls often up to 2,000 feet or more, and utilized every patch of ground susceptible of tillage. A mountain environment often occasions a forced development in the form of agriculture among peoples who otherwise still linger in a low stage of barbarism or savagery. The wild, head-hunting Negros, inhabiting the cordilleras of north-central Luzon, have leveled the face of their mountains into a series of platforms, held by retaining walls from 20 to 30 feet high. On these they cultivate upland rice at an altitude of 5,000 feet. The Igaro province of Bantak contains valleys in which every available foot of land is terraced for rice, and which present artificial landscapes vividly recalling Japan. Labor is the heritage of each inhabitant. Every man, woman and child down to 10 years of age shares in the work of providing food. Africa shows parallel cases. The Angos people, a savage Negro tribe who occupy part of the Mirshizan range in northern Nigeria, had mapped out all their sloping land into little terraces sometimes only a foot or two wide, one of their peaks, 4135 feet high, has its plateau top covered with populous villages, owing to the protection of the site, and every inch of its slope cut into terraces planted with millet and guinea corn, a more primitive form of the stillage is found in the country of the Maranga Negros, who occupy the steep western face of the rift valley filled by Lake Tanganyika, here Cameron found the surface not regularly terraced, but retaining walls of loose stones disposed at intervals, which serve to hold the soil in place, without greatly altering the natural slope. The scene recalled the terraced heights of Switzerland, and the people working there looked like flies on a wall. In the semi-arid country of Sudanese Darfur, where only the mountain districts are well watered and thickly populated, small terraces for grain and melons cover all the slopes. Mountain agriculture is necessarily laborious. The paucity of arable land precludes the possibility of letting fields lie fellow. These, to prevent exhaustion, must be constantly and abundantly fertilized, all the more as conditions of excessive subaerial denudation found in the steep slope and usual heavy rainfall of mountains, as well as possible glacial scouring of the land in the past, have greatly attenuated the layer of soil called upon to support plant life. The Swiss or Tyrol's farmer cherishes his manure pile as at once source and badge of his wealth. After harvest it is carted or carried in baskets not only to the terraces, but also to the wide alluvial fan that grows his oats and rye, to his meadows and hay fields. Both in Mexico and Peru the soil received a dressing of powdrat. Manuring was most extensive where population was densest, as in the isolated mountain valleys opening out upon the desert coast of Peru. Every kind of organic refuse was utilized, and fish was buried with the kernels of maize as a fertilizer. The deposits of guano found on the headlands and offshore islands were used from the remotest times. Different guano beds were assigned to the several provinces, and the breeding places of the birds were protected by law. Ashes and decayed wood were employed for the same purpose, or plants were dug into the soil, while human manure was in Mexico a marketable commodity as in China. In all mountain regions where population has begun to press upon the meager limits of subsistence, level land and soil are at a premium. In ancient Peru space was begrudged for the dead. Cities covered considerable space on the roomy intermontane plateaus, but in the narrow lateral valleys, houses and temples were built on rocks. In order to reserve every fertile spot for agriculture, the traveler notices the same thing throughout the Alps. Compact villages cling to the mountain sides. 
leaving the alluvial hem of the stream or level glacial terrace free for the much-needed fields, only in broad longitudinal valleys, like that of Endermet, do the settlements complacently spread out their skirts, or on wide alluvial fans where transverse valleys debouch upon the plains, the mountaineers of the Crimea construct their houses against the precipices, excavating into their face and building up the front, with stones, and thus reserve the gentler slopes for vineyards and gardens, in the Kendra, Kumaun, and Garhol districts of the British Himalayas, the large Indian villages of the plains give place to small hamlets or detached homesteads, scattered here and there wherever occasional patches of soil on the hillside or in a narrow valley offer hope of sustenance. These hamlets or dwellings are located on the sides of the mountains, because level spots which can be irrigated must be reserved for rice fields. The high site is also freer from malaria. In the high Himalayan province of Ladakh or western Tibet, this principle of land economy reaches a climax. All settlement is on the perpendicular. The abrupt mountain sides are honeycombed with tombs, villages and Buddhist lamasaries in the detached localities where population occurs. A pleasure walk through one of these Tibetan towns means a climb by steep flights of steps hewn out of the rock, varied by a saunter up ladders, where the sheer face of a cliff must be surmounted to reach the houses on a ledge above. Pictures of these recall forcibly the cliff dwellings of the Pueblo Indians. Even the important market city of Lake covers the lower slope of the mountain at an altitude of 11.500 feet, and from its height overlooks the cultivated fields in the sandy valley bed below. Made fertile by irrigating streams from debouching cannons, the Ladakh villages always shun the plains. The desire to economize level arable land does not alone dictate this choice of sites. However, the motive of protection against inundation, when the snows melt and the streams swell, and also, to some degree, against hostile attack, is an additional factor, in the mountainous parts of overcrowded China, again, the food problem is the dominant motive, in the rugged highland province of Shenzhi, a village of several hundred people covers only a few acres, and rises in closely packed tiers of houses against the mountainside, in the wilder, half-conquered parts of Sichuan the villages crown the lower peaks, cling to the base of the mountains, or are perched on ledges of rock overlooking the gorges, among the steep cliffs bordering the upper Yangtze, occupied chiefly by the timid, displaced Mansa and Origines, at an altitude of 10.000 feet. Small platforms resting on beams projecting from the sheer mountain face support minute houses, whose backs burrow into the cliff behind. The small children are tied to the doorpost, to keep them from falling into the millet field below. The house is accessible only by bolts driven into the cliff. Above and below is the farm small patches of tilled soil, often not larger than a bath towel, to which the cultivator lowers himself by a rope. Here life hovers on the brink of death and despair. Paucity of arable land in mountain regions leads to the utilization of the untillable slopes for stock grazing. This industry is always a valuable ally to mountain agriculture on account of the manure which it yields, but in high altitudes, where the steepness or rockiness of the soil Cold and the brevity of the growing season restrict or eliminate cereal crops. It becomes the dominant occupation of the inhabitants, while agriculture takes a subordinate place, limited to the production of hay and fodder for the winter feeding of the stock. Above the line of tree growth flourish the natural summer pastures up to the border of perpetual snow, and just below lies a zone which, if cleared of its forests, supports a thick carpet of grass and herbage, though too cold to ripen grain. The high pastures are particularly nourishing. Cows feeding here in the Alps give better milk than the home or valley cows, though a smaller quantity. 
Sheep and goats do equally well, but swine are profitable only as a byproduct. To utilize the refuse of the cheese and butter industry, the area of these pastures far exceeds that of arable land in mountain regions. In Switzerland they comprise about 27% of the total productive area, hay meadows 24%, but fields and gardens only 20%. In the Austrian province of Salzburg, pastures make up 13.3%, hay meadows 34.5%, and tilled fields only 11.7% of the total productive area. In the Tyrol the figures are much the same, since Norway has over 67% of its total area in bare mountains, snow fields, bogs and lakes, it is not surprising to find only 7.6% in pastures, 2.2% in meadows, and 0.7% in grain fields, but here the pastures are 10 times the arable area, the season of the summer feeding on the grasslands is short, in the so-called high alps it frequently lasts only 6 or 7 weeks, in the Grisons at most 13 weeks and in Norway from 2 to 3 months, High mountain regions, practically restricted to the Squisworth Jeft, soon reach their maximum of prosperity and population. The amount of hay secured for the winter feeding limits the number of cattle, and the number of the cattle, through their manure, fixes the valley hay supply. Alpine pastures cannot be enlarged, and they may be reduced by accidents of nature, such as landslides, devastating torrents, or advance of ice fields or glaciers. They cannot be improved by capital and labor and they may deteriorate chemically by exhaustion. The constant export of butter and cheese from alpine pastures in recent times, without substitution by any fertilizer beyond the local manure, has caused the diminution of phosphoric acid in the soil and hence impoverishment. Canton Glorus has shown a steady decline since 1630 in the number of cows which its mountain pastures can support. Many other alpine districts show the same deterioration. The remoteness of these highland pastures from the permanent villages necessitates Senenworthjeft, or the maintenance of out-farms and shepherds on the mountains during the grazing season. This involves a semi-nomadic existence for such inhabitants as serve as herdmen. In June, as soon as the high pastures begin to grow green, cattle, sheep and goats ascend step by step in the wake of summer, as she climbs the slope, and they return in autumn to the valleys, there they feed on the stubble of hay and grain fields till the increasing cold confines them to their low stables. The hut of the center or sitter, as the herdsman is variously called in Switzerland and Norway, consists of a living room and a smaller apartment for making butter and cheese, while against the steep slope is a rude stone shelter for the cattle and goats. The predominance of summer pastures has made cattle raising a conspicuous part of agriculture in the Alps and in Norway. In many parts of Switzerland, Cattle are called, wares, and the word cheese is used as a synonym for food, as we use bread. A Swiss peasant who has a reputation for cheese making is popular with the girls. Here even Cupid turns dairy expert, since it is scarcely practicable to divide these highland pastures. They have generally remained communal property, whether in Norway, Switzerland, the Bavarian Alps, the British Himalayan districts, Nepal and Bhutan, or Kashmir. In Europe their use is generally regulated. As a rule, a Swiss villager may keep on the almond during the summer as many head of cattle as he is able to stall feed during the winter. Any in excess of this number must be paid for at a fixed rate to the village or commune treasury. Hay sheds and herdsmen's huts mark these districts of temporary occupation near the altitude limits of human life throughout Europe. In Asia, likewise, are to be found small villages, inhabited only in summer by herdsmen tending their flocks. 
such as the hamlet of Minenberg, located at an altitude of about 8,000 feet at the southern entrance to the Borazil Pass over the western Himalayas, and Somamberg altitude 8650 feet or 2640 meters just below the Zogilo Pass, both of them surrounded by rich meadows on the northern rim of the Vale of Kashmir. The utilization of mountain pastures for stock raising is almost universal. In the arid highlands of Central Asia, it is the essential supplement to the pastoral nomadism of the steppes and deserts, and to the limited sedentary agriculture found along the irrigated Piedmont slopes. Here and elsewhere the animal raised varies widely the llama and vicuña in Peru, which thrive best at 10.000 to 14.000 feet elevation and multiply rapidly on the Iku or coarse grass which close the slopes of the higher Andes up to snow line, sheep, goats, yaks and herds of zoo, a full hybrid between yak and cow. In the highland districts of Sichuan, here the Mansa mountaineers lot their houses and leave their villages deserted, while they camp with their herds on the high pastures at 10.000 feet or more. Only economical, ingenious Japan has failed to develop stock raising. Though mountains comprise two-thirds of its area, the explanation has often been sought in Buddhism, which inhibits the use of animal food, but this religious rule probably found ready acceptance in Japan, just because the paucity of animal food made its observance easy, for the fish industry of the empire never suffered from the inhibition, the reason is probably to be sought elsewhere, the native grass of Japan, which relentlessly crowds out all imported grazing crops, is a bamboo grass with sharp, hard, serrated edges, and is said to cut the entrails of horses and sheep, while the high pastures are ample for the summer feeding. The chief problem of mountain stock farmers is to secure feed for the winter support of their animals. This taxes their industry and ingenuity to the utmost, while the herdsmen are away tending their charges on the heights. The rest of the population are kept busy at home, getting fodder for the six or seven months of stall feeding. This includes the cultivation of hardy crops like oats rye and barley, which will mature at a great altitude, hay making and collecting twigs and even leaves for the less fastidious goats. In Switzerland as in Norway the art of mowing has reached its highest pitch. Grass only three inches high is cut thrice yearly. The Norwegian peasant gathers a small hay harvest from the roofs of his house and barns, and from the edges of the highways. In Switzerland not a spear of grass escapes. In places inaccessible to cattle and goats, the peasant gathers hay by the handful with crampons on his feet, generally from the ledges of cliffs. He stacks it in one spot, and brings it down to the valley by sledge in winter. He is the wild doer or wild hay gatherer. His life is so dangerous, that the law permits only one wild doer to a family. In high alpine cantons this office is the privilege of the poor. The traveler in Norway frequently sees huge bundles of hay sliding down to the valley on wires stretched from some high point on the precipitous fjord wall. This represents the harvest from isolated spots or from the field of the summer shepherd. In the vicinity of every sitter hut, a plot of ground is fenced in enriched with the manure gathered during the summer, and utilized to grow fine nourishing grass, which is mown and transported down to the valley farm. Here economy of vegetative resources reaches its climax. In mountain regions of heavy rainfall, thick dew and numerous cloudy days, it becomes a problem to get the hay dried and stored before a drenching shower comes. In many parts of Switzerland, therefore, the peasant on a clear morning cuts a limited amount of grass. This, with the help of his wife and children, he diligently turns and tosses at short intervals all day long. 
thus subjecting it to a rapid curing process by the action of the wind and the sunday whose rays are doubly effective in the rarefied air of the heights. In the evening the hay is made up into bundles and carried on his back to the barn. In other parts of Switzerland the green hay is hung on horizontal poles arranged against the sunny side of the chalet and under its projecting roof, thus exposed to the heat and protected from the rain till cured. In Norway the same purpose is achieved by setting up in the fields racks supporting long horizontal bars, over which the newly cut grass is hung. There it is exposed to the gentle fanning of the wind and penetrated by the warmth of the Sunday in the short intervals when the sky is not overcast, and during a shower it sheds the water immediately, so that a minimum of harm is done. In the mountains of Germany, the hay is stacked on cone-shaped racks made of poles, with lateral projections which support the grass, thus the air can circulate freely inside the hollow cone, which is lifted well above the ground. Elsewhere sharpened stakes provided with crossbars are simply driven into the ground, and on these the hay is draped till cured. Mountain hay making leaves nothing to chance, too much depends upon the crop. In fact, at high altitudes it becomes the only crop. Cereal culture drops off with every increase of elevation. Norway has few fields above 1600 feet, even barley fails to ripen above 2600 feet. In the mountains of Wurtenberg we find Pier Grisworth just at 3,000 feet elevation, with only a small garden patch near the dwelling. It is interesting to take a tramp up one of the longitudinal or lateral valleys of the Alps, and observe the economic basis of life gradually change from agriculture to haymaking, till in some high-laid alpine cirque, like Dadlik or Barmaz at the head of the Val d'Islay, one sees only meadows and an occasional potato patch which impresses the lowlander as a last despairing effort in the struggle for existence, where climate and soil do so little for the support of life. Man must do much. Work must in some way be made to compensate for an ungenerous nature. The closely housed existence necessitated by the long severe winters of high altitudes stimulates industries in the home. The winter feeding of the stock involves little labor, so the abundant leisure would otherwise be wasted. Hence it is no accident that we find almost everywhere native mountain industries in a high state of development, and often characterized by an artistic beauty which seems to be the one flower of this barren environment. They are naturally based upon the local raw materials of the mountains, such as wood, metals, clays, and especially the wool of sheep and goats. Moreover, their products are articles of small bulk and large value, adapted to costly mountain transportation. Those of Kashmir are typical carved wood, artistic metalwork in silver and copper, tattoo cloth, carpets and the famous Kashmir shawls. The stark life of Tibet shows in its industries an unexpected richness and beauty. The men spin and weave wool into tattoo cloth of all grades, some of it is extraordinarily fine in texture and color, and is exported by caravan in considerable quantity to northern China and Mongolia. Pastel sticks, made of aromatic wood and impregnated with musk and gold dust are a conspicuous commodity in the trade with Peking. Tibet is rich in metals, especially silver and gold. Even the nomad shepherds of the tablelands know how to purify gold dust over a fire of orgals, hence it is not surprising that the settlements in the irrigated mountain valleys should develop real artists in metallurgy. The province of Durga, which excels in metalwork, produces swords, guns, teapots, bells and seals of extremely artistic design and perfect finish. The jewelry of Tibet suggests Byzantine work. It includes earrings and charm boxes of gold and carved turquoise, and is marked by the same delicate finish. But whether the Tibetan is working in wood, gold, brass, or wool, he uses native designs of real merit. 
and shows the expert craftsman's hand. His activities recall the metal work of the Caucasus and the famous rugs of Daston. Turning to Europe we find watch and clock making in the Black Forest and the Jura, wood carving in the Swiss and Norwegian mountains, bobbin lace in the Ur Range and in Alpine Apenzel, and the far more beautiful Italian product of the rugged Abruzzi and the Friulian Alps. The Slovaks of Highland Hungary are expert in wire drawing, and the peasant of the Central Apennines makes from the gut of his goats the finest violin strings in the world. The so-called Roman strings, the low Thuringian and Franconian forests, which harbor denser populations, have by a minute subdivision of labor turned their local resources to the making of dolls, which they supply to the markets of the world, here to the manufacture of glass articles, porcelains, majolic and terracotta flourishes. Most of these mountain industries nearly supplement the scant agricultural resources, they represent the efforts of industrious but hard-pressed people to eke out their meager subsistence. The application of steam to industry has converted mountain regions of abundant mineral wealth into centers of production for the markets of the world, but this is the history of only the last century, and of only favored mountain regions. The utilization of water power for electricity in factories is transforming the Piedmont belts of the Alps and Apennines, but life in the interior of these ranges remains unaltered by the denser population at their base, except for the increased demand for the butter milk and cheese of the highland pastures, for the world at large. Therefore, the obvious and persistent fact of mountain economy is a scanty food supply secured by even the most intelligent and untiring labor, and a fixed tendency to overpopulation. The simplest remedy for this evil is emigration, a fact which Nalthus observed. Hence emigration is an almost universal phenomenon in highland regions. Sometimes it is only seasonal. It takes place in the fall after the field work is over and is due to the paucity of industries possible in the mountains during the winter. It seems to be a recurrence of that nomadic note in the motif of mountain life that migration in summer upward to the borders of the snow, in winter downward to the sun-warmed plains. In autumn the Swiss descend from the Jura and Alps in great numbers to cities, seeking positions as servants or pastry cooks. The Auvernats leave their home by the thousand in the fall, when snow covers the mountains, to work in the cities as hewers of stone and drawers of water then return in summer to resume their tasks in field and pasture, bringing back sums of money which noticeably enrich the home districts. The seasonal emigration often assumes the form of peddling, in order to dispose of small homemade wares, from the Basilicata and Magna Apen, 